0: What's the biggest one that's on record at this point? It's
1: 2,300 acres that it covers there and weighs uh, 35,000 tons. Hey
0: everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Science Centric Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Eric Olson. Before we dive into the uh, you know, main interview of this uh, episode, I just wanted to mention um, a couple of things. One is, if you're watching on YouTube, please like this video and subscribe to our channel. It really helps. We're trying to get to 1,000 followers and we're well on our way, so um, if you could do that for us, that would really be a big help. Um, if you're listening through just just the audio version, you could help us by rating this podcast um, on whatever platform you're listening on and also um, writing a review uh, just to let people know what you thought. The second thing is if you like this content that we produce, uh, there are a couple of different ways that you can support us. One is uh, through Patreon. We have a couple of different benefit levels, so if you um, sign up, you can uh, support us each month, and you'll get some benefits like early access to new episodes, ad-free episodes, and uh, also a monthly private Q&A with me for for uh, patrons only. You can find out how to do that by looking uh, for links in the YouTube description, uh, the show notes if you're listening to the audio version, and... Uh, or head over to sciencecentric.com support. Our guest for this episode is Keith Seifert. He's a Canadian mycologist who spent more than 40 years studying fungi on five continents. He's done research on microscopic fungi from farms, forests, food, and the built environment, as well as studies, studied ways of reducing fungal toxins and diseases affecting plants and animals. He's a former president of the International Mycological Association, an executive editor of Mycologia, Mycolo- and an associate editor of several other scientific journals. So, Keith, so glad to have you here, and welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Eric. It's great to be here.
0: <laughs> awesome. Um, I also just forgot to mention that we're, we're, um, you have a book coming out soon, um, called The Hidden Kingdom of Fungi.
1: I say fungi.
0: Fungi, okay. Yeah,
1: but a lot of people say fungi, so a lot of people say fungi. It's...
0: <laughs> this gets into the kind of gif, jif uh, area of disagreement on uh,
1: pronunciation, yeah. I think. Latin and Greek and Oxford and Cambridge.
0: <laughs> there you go. <laughs> cool. So, um, well, anyways, thanks again, thanks so much for, for speaking with me and... Um, I I guess my first question for you is uh, I, I think a lot of people th- when they think about uh, fun f- we'll say fungi for this interview fungi they think about um, mushrooms and that's about as far as their knowledge goes so maybe you could give us you know a little bit of an overview of what what a what fungi is and also, why why are people unfamiliar with it compared to other uh, groups of organisms, or why do you think?
1: Yeah, there, there's there's a lot of layers buried in those questions. <laughs> but <laughs> but from a, from a to a biologist, fungi are a, a kingdom or a domain, or you know, there's other names that are used for it. But somehow equil- equivalent to plants and animals, so they're uh, they used to be considered plants when I when I was in university. They were uh-huh. still being taught in botany courses, but that really has uh, has come apart now. And and fungi are their own kingdom, equivalent to plants and animals. And um, I think the so that explains part of the reason what, that people didn't really focus on them very much because they were a subset of botany or, or of plants. Mm So, um, but on the other hand, the the, the book is called The Hidden Kingdom. And and I'm certainly not the inventor of that phrase. A lot of uh, people refer to the fungi as The Hidden Kingdom because they are among us. They are everywhere. um, But we really don't see them. And what we do see are, uh, you know, the mushrooms that pop up or or the molds that pop out on our bread or on our compost and things like that so yeah. when when we see them we tend to be surprised because they didn't seem like they were there yesterday and then all of a sudden here here they are and it's yeah. kind of like uh, an analogy is plant roots you know some plants over winter just as the roots and, and they're under the ground and nobody sees them and in the spring they pop out again and that's kind mm-hmm. of what the story is with mushrooms and to a certain extent, with molds, too. Instead of roots, they're, they're cylindrical cells that we call hyphae, and that's a characteristic uh, aspect of what a fungus is. These They build themselves out of tubes, and that's quite different from plants which build themselves out of bricks, if you want to think of it that way, or people, uh, animals, which are kind of built like bags of water around the skeleton or inside a, inside a shell. So yeah. that's... That's one thing that makes the fungi, and that's, that's one of the things that makes them so interesting because they are so, their mode of moving around and the whole nature of what their body is is very different than ours. We always have the same body, or at least we think we do, you know, and, and you know, the trees outside the window here seem to stay the same through their whole lives, but fungi just kind of spread and, and change shape and, and move around all of the time. And another thing that uh, most people know about, I think, is the spores. So that's their reproductive system is by uh, sending out balloons. Mm-hmm. And uh-huh. so they, they move around that way and they make lots of spores. You know, there's counts of, you know, hundreds of thousands of spores in a, in a cubic yard of air um, in in moldy environments, for example. So mm-hmm. um, there's that. So, so
0: So I think you the one of the points you make in the book is that fun, fungi are more closely related to animals than they are to plants is that correct
1: right from an evolutionary perspective that's now shown to be the case and uh uh-huh. and you know and the irony again that that they used to be sort of con- taught in amongst as if they were plants you know and but actually they're they're closer to us from an evolutionary perspective. So plants divided away uh, from us before fungi did.
0: Yeah. So, so in terms of mobility and things like that, when we think about plants, we tend to think that as these kind of hard, you know, the, the cells are kind of rigid and they don't move so much. And then animals are very mobile are, are fungi sort of somewhere in the middle in terms of mobility? Or I think
1: they're I mean, they're closer to what you would think of the plants in terms of speed. You know, they they don't run around the way that that we do. And, and, uh, you know, even a fast fungus, whether it's a fast growing hypha or or something else is only going to grow an inch a day. You know, it's so they're not they're not running around. But but they they do get up into the jet stream and they do move around the world that way in Mm -hmm. the air so i mean from that perspective they they can get around in ways that we can't
0: yeah i guess you could say that would that's somewhat true of plants as well and and that they you know produce seeds or things that kind of fly through the air
1: yeah Um, which
0: obviously we don't but
1: (laughs) (laughs) normally we don't though.
0: normally yes (laughs) without a lot of help (laughs) yeah um so uh, another thing that I thought was interesting about fungi is that um, you 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 spend a lot of time in the book talking about yeast, right. uh, in particular. So yeast, I believe, are single celled organisms, but then you have fungi that go all the way up to these giant colony underground colonies. Um, it it seems like in terms of size that f- fungi have this huge range when, and, but but people typically think of that kind of that middle range of a mushroom, but it seems like it really covers as wide a spectrum as, you know, the other kingdoms in terms of yeah, size. It, it,
1: it surprised people when it was in, um, it was about 1990. I think that this humongous fungus was discovered in Michigan. And uh, it was kind of a shock, even to the people who, Discovered it that, but it's a different kind of thing. And the the analogy I would use is that just if you could imagine cloning humans like they do in science fiction films, you know, so you've you've got different uh, human bodies walking around, but if they hold hands with each other, they join together, and and they become one. And and so that's what the deal is with with the humongous fungus. You know, it's not one body that just grew out and and filled all of these acres it it's lots of bodies that were clones and they joined together and and formed this kind of network body so it's a totally different idea of uh, of what an individual is and (laughs) and i i like to have games sometimes with students or an audience you know sort of imagining what would they be that would be like you know every time you hold hands with somebody you stuck together and and then how easy would it be to get a, organize that group to get out of the room you know
0: right right so you become this kind of super organism could you just say what the humongous fungus is because I'm not sure that everybody listening <laughs> would necessarily know what that is
1: so there's a group of mushrooms called um honey mushrooms Armillaria is the Latin name, and but they're called honey mushrooms because the cap kind of looks like the cr- crystals of honey on on the cap, and they're tree pathogens. So they they attack trees, and they get involved with the root systems, and then they send out these things that look like shoelaces, and they just spread that way, and and so they um, and then they join together, and they make these large, um, complex individuals, and and. If, it's and what's the which, an which what's
0: what's the biggest one that that's on record at this point?
1: Right now, it's uh, there's one in Oregon. I think it's Malher National Forest or Malher. I'm not sure, sure how it would be said. And it's twenty three hundred acres Jeez. that it covers there, and weighs uh, thirty five thousand tons. Wow! So that, that's a lot of <laughs> hidden fungus. So that's... All, people would just see the mushrooms popping up you know every every fall or every summer
0: now are is that uh, are, is that sort of humongous fungus are all those is it all genetically the same thing or are they or are they just closely related in terms of um, you know yeah that's individual organisms
1: they are not necessarily genetically closely related uh, they they are genetically closely related they're not necessarily Identical, uh, like hundred percent of the, of all genes in the genome, that there are uh, genes in fungi just as there are in plants, uh, humans rather that that um, uh, like with organ transplants, you know, you you have to have a, a close match or a blood uh, transfusion. That those are what we call uh, self recognition genes. So in in this fungus, the self-recognition genes have to be identical. Otherwise they can't join together. So that much of them is identical. And then, mm-hmm. you know, the, the rest of them may have a little bit of variation here, mm-hmm. but it's, it's a very small percentage that's different. So but that's what we call clones in that sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, the, so that's, yeah. 30, you said 3,500, 500- Thirty-five thousand tons. Yeah, that's insane. So that's like you know that's got the animal, uh, uh, largest animal organism, beat by a lot, which is the blue whale, I believe. So yeah, there's there's um,
1: kind of a running joke in biology about about using the blue whale as the unit of mass, and (laughs) and so this weighs two hundred blue whales.
0: (laughs) Two hundred blue whales. Yeah, there you go. Amazing, Um, but as you said, it's hidden. I mean, aside from its you know, uh, spore-producing mushrooms—you just yeah. don't see it. Um, so, so that's that's on the, you know, big the big end of the the spectrum. But then we have on the on the small end of the spectrum, we have these yeast, which um, are really uh, interesting. And I I I don't think that most people think of yeast as fungi. Um, they probably they
1: think about it very much yeah you know i think but, knows about yeah. yeast, but
0: <laughs> but they have this amazing um i mean they're so useful for us um particularly when it comes to food items um so so what what are some of the things that uh, that we eat on a common or, or on a regular basis that involve yeast i, I right so think there, it's quite a long list
1: yeah there are it is a long list and and the fa- the famous yeast is called the Sugar yeast, or brewers yeast, or bakers yeast—I called it the brewers yeast in the book because that's the oldest uh, use of it, is for brewing. And but it's one species, or a, a species in quotation marks, and it's called Saccharomyces, which means sugar fungus. And so it's—it has a long history of being involved with with uh, with humans. And th- there's a theory out there called the drunken ape theory that that man, uh, humanity centralized its civilization in order to have grains so that they could uh, brew.
0: Uh-huh. It,
1: it, it's, a, it's a fun theory. And, I and, you know, it, it tends to be, uh, you know, domestication is through the eye of the beholder, you know. So from our perspective, uh, we domesticated yeast. But, from the yeast perspective, they may think they domesticated us, because they've certainly done very well <laughs> uh, from us in terms of you know expanding their population. You do find this fungus out in the wild, but you know really you find it in in beer wine uh, and bread or the those are the three big ones, but it's also involved even in soy sauce uh, manufacture to a small extent um, and in uh, chocolate fermentation um you know, it's just, yeah. it's just a, a fungus, this yeast is a fungus. And, and it's um, just has, it has talents that we like. So when it gets into a, say, um, you know, grape must or, or malted barley or something like that, we like what it does, you know? And so yeah. we don't try to stop it from that. And is there, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that, you know, there's estimates that the the value of the yeast economy on the planet is 10% of human economic activity. And that's that's really strange to think about it from that perspective. And I'm not an economist, but, you know, that doesn't seem far off to me.
0: That's, yeah, I, I think you're right when you talk about, yeah, beer and bread and cheese and wine. And yeah, that's, a, that's sort of all things that people like that also uh, generate a lot of money. So that makes sense. Um, so one thing I always wonder about is you have this yeast that's naturally occurring. Um, you know, doesn't really, I don't think occurs in large quantities or anything like that. So how did, how did humans get mixed up with yeast? Um, do we have any sense of that, about how that relationship evolved?
1: Well, this species and the the other related species um, are found in uh, plant nectar and in tree sap, and they also get into the uh, intestines of beetles and other insects. So probably their natural um, cycle is something like that, you know, from, from the Nectar of the flower into the beetle, and the beetle flies away, and and drops some yeast cells in the next flower that it. um So that that, but when you have a, when you're a single cell organism like that, your right your lifespan's very short, from a certain perspective, hours maybe, and but they don't really have lifespans like we do because they just keep dividing. So you know it's each cell may only be a couple of hours old, but but nobody's died. You know, they've just split into multiple individuals and, and, but what the real advantage for yeast when, when they got involved with humans is that, you know, we're willing to feed them. We're willing to give them a a, 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 big batch of sugar water. And instead of a little dribble in a, in the middle of a flower, I mean, and, and then when they run out of food, we just try, we, we just move them off and give them some more food. So it, the archaeology suggests that that humans have been brewing for about ten thousand years, or so or or longer. Um, yeah. And this is found. This is done by uh, looking at shards of, of pots, you know, clay vessels from yeah. archaeological sites, and they find the chemical fingerprints of of these metabolites. So not just the alcohol, which would evolve, which would uh, you know, go just float away, but but other compounds that are yeah. high in, in, in wines and beers that give it color and so on.
0: Is there is there something unique to fungi about uh, yeast specifically about what it produces that makes things taste so good? Are are there certain compounds that it creates that 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 say plants or bacteria? don't create that that make it so delicious because like all of those things you listed are pretty much delicious right so sure. and 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 fungi themselves are too i mean my my 10 year old son would disagree with that but <laughs> we <laughs> love we love eating mushrooms for example so is there something they're making that's that's adding to this flavor of food
1: well it, there are other organisms that make alcohol so it's not just the alcohol I, it's definitely the best at making large quantities of alcohol. So for that reason, you know, um, if we're focused on alcohol, that's, that's a good choice, but they also make a lot of, um, we call them aromatic compounds. So they're small organic molecules. They like six to 10 carbons or something, you know, maybe more than that, but they're small enough that they get out into the air and, Mm -hmm. um, so we can smell them, and and uh, not all of these things smell good, but um, the the combination of them tends to be pleasant to us, and and it probably also attracts insects. You know, thinking back to their original um, habitat, that that uh, they would be calling the insects by by sending out these sweet fruity smells. And, and...
0: Uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um. So maybe they have some symbiotic relationship with plants as well. That they're helping the plants to, you know, bring insects, pollinators to them, or something like that. It could,
1: yeah. I don't, I don't know that anybody's really thought of that one in terms of, of being a, um, a symbiosis. Yeah. But that's an interesting one. I didn't really thought about that. More, for, All right. more focused on our symbiosis.
0: <laughs> yeah. Hey, it's a paper I just gave you in I just gave you, yeah, I, want to, I want to co-author credit on that. Okay, if you're right. no problem. Just, <laughs> um, I just wanted to take a moment to thank the sponsor of this episode, FlowSpark Media. So FlowSpark Media is the video-based media company that I founded in 2018. In addition to producing freely available series like the one you're listening to, we also help science and technology-focused organizations to develop, create, and manage their video projects. Our clients range from major scientific publishers to space telecom companies to STEM-focused educational programs. Head over to flowspark.com creative to find out how we can help you with your next project. Now back to the show.
1: Well, one of the things I could say about yeast that's, that kind of carry carries over into another part of the food story is that yeah. yeast don't make toxins that affect us. And, right. and so from that point of view, they're a really banal uh, or harmless thing for us. They, 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 there are people who get kind of hypersensitivity to it and so on. But 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 really, yeast are harmless to us. You can't say that for every fungus that's growing on food.
0: Yeah, that's a great uh, that's a great segue actually to talk about um, you know the other sort of the other way that people know about fungi and you hear about this every year. There's somebody that dies from eating poisonous mushrooms. Um, so. Uh, you know, is is there any particular reason why why fungi are, you know, why some of them are so poisonous? Or um, is, is that, you know, why did they evolve that way? Um, it, it seems like it's, uh, um, there's some particularly toxic, toxic mushrooms out there.
1: Yeah. There's, there, probably most of the really toxic chemicals that they produce are aimed at insects or um, and to a certain extent, at uh, other animals, at animals, but and a lot of them are probably they, they call it resource guarding or resource sequestering. They, they, if you if you're growing in a particular place, one way to stop anybody else from moving in is just to saturate it. The, the environment with something annoying or, or something toxic, you know? And so they're constantly at war with bacteria also. So that's where mm. the antibiotics come from. Um, yeah. But there's some really bizarre things with the fungal toxins in animals. And, and uh, they're, they're, I was reading something you're in New York. I was reading something about the mice in New York City in, in, in Central Park there's a fungal toxin called aflatoxin it's a really nasty toxin and it kills uh, as many people as malaria does in the, in on a on the world scale but it's, yeah. it's more or less under control in in north america and but when people throw away their food in central park and they throw it into the garbage cans um the mice eat this food, and they get exposed to, to aflatoxin. And there's these po- populations of field mice in, in Central Park, and some of them have developed some resistance to aflatoxin. It's just amazing.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, there's they're always. Uh, yeah, I, I feel like that population of animals living in New York City is is evolving to <laughs> faster than other. Other animals in other parts of the world, just because it's such a strange environment, yeah. Um, and and different pressures and things like that. Um, so yeah, that's a that's a real common one. Um, also, you know, not not just poisons and mushrooms, but yeah, af, it's afla aflatoxin,
1: aflatoxin,
0: um, yeah. And that's commonly found in peanuts, correct?
1: Yeah, it's peanuts and maize or corn, as you say in the U.S. Corn and and uh-huh. and it's a big problem with American corn, actually, in the southern. States where it's warmer, um, uh-huh. but the regulatory system handles it more or less. Um, so it it doesn't really enter the human food chain very much in our mm-hmm. countries. Um, it gets the problem is if pe- if people decide, well, I can't sell this for human food, and they feed it to their animals, and then it, that kind of causes a separate sort of problem series of problems that uh, may not be direct toxicity to us but
0: yeah i mean i i think this this also kind of brings up the idea of you know people not necessarily thinking about molds as being fungus um you know it's just some it's it's more of an inconvenience but it's also just that the thing that i really took away from your book is just that there's fungus like everywhere you know all around us dust you know growing it's growing on us it's growing in us um it's something we don't think about but it really is like pretty much everywhere yeah. and part of our everyday existence um i was but i yeah.
1: yeah yeah the point of the book like the focus of the book is kind of different than the other books that are out there about fungi because i really wanted to focus on uh, where they were in the human environment and, and how they interacted with us and how we yeah. interacted with them. And, and at the same time, I wanted people not to be uh, totally shocked by that. Like I wanted them to realize that there's good things about it and there's bad things about it. And it's useful for us to know both, that, you know, mm-hmm. that we be aware that there's good things and there's bad things. And you mentioned mushroom poisoning a few times and I I did I needed to include that a bit in the book because I think there's a lot of of uh, kind of folk medicine tales about eating wild mushrooms and more and more in in the United States and in Canada now there are people who are going out and eating mushrooms and part of that is because of the cultural d- diversification that's occurred in the last 50 years or so you know that people are come coming in from other countries where eating mushrooms is just part of their world and part of their culture and so that's that's kind of integrating into our culture but but also there's just an interest in biodiversity and nature and so there's more people that are going out to collect mushrooms and and uh i really encourage people who are interested to go out rather than Buying a book and and trying to identify things themselves. They could go to a join a mycological society. There's there's a fantastic one in in New York. And, yeah, I've uh, heard of that. Yeah, and you know the, they're very welcoming people. A very, very diverse group of people brought together by this common interest, and and they learn by sharing with each other. It's really great. I mean, I I learned when I was a student. I learned mushroom identification by joining a mycological club. And for people in other cities, there's a list on the North American Mycological Association's homepage of all of the mycological societies around, around uh, Canada and the U.S. And in Europe, the European Mycological Association has a list yeah. on their website. So.
0: Yeah, I, uh, that reminded me. So I when I worked in science, I worked in a genetics lab And I had a Russian lab mate, uh, who was really got into mushroom hunting. And I remember one time he brought back a bunch of what he said were chanterelle mushrooms and I was, I, I don't, I know nothing about, you know, mushroom hunting or anything like that, but I, he gave me some of them and I was like, Oh, thanks. Thanks Roman. Um, anyways. Uh, long story short, I waited a couple of days before I tried them. I wanted to make sure that he he tried them first. Um, and it was fine, but, um, you mentioned in the book, there's, there, there's something that you should do in terms of, um, you know, making sure mushrooms are safe before you consume them.
1: Yeah. I mean, you should know what they are, but you know, even then People react differently to eating mushrooms. You know, you have an individual response to it. There, there are people who have allergies um, to certain foods and, and perhaps to, to mushrooms. So like the, the rule of thumb is, you know, try one and wait a couple of days and make sure that it's not having any unexpected, unwelcome effects. And at the same yeah. time you do that, make sure that you keep some around uh so that if something does go wrong that you know you can contact poison control and they they have something to work with about what you've eaten you know not i thought i ate this but they 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 can usually uh consult with an expert pretty efficiently they they have people on call for mushroom poisoning and um so they they can deal with it but it, usually when you learn mushrooms do you you learn the poisonous ones first mm-hmm. and and then once you know the poisonous ones then then it's a bit safer to to wander out a little bit and there there's a few really easy mushrooms to recognize like the oyster mushroom for example that you can buy in the grocery store now and and morels which i don't think they're quite out in your area yet they're maybe yeah. a few more weeks but um I mean, they're pretty hard to mix up with anything else. It's possible, but uh,
0: what what are the ones that that are are typically problematic that that people consume? Uh, well, the real
1: bad ones are called amanita, and they 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 have a variety of common names like destroying angel or angel of death. That kind of <laughs> usually <laughs> the names are pretty descript, descriptive. Like if you knew that you had the angel of death, you wouldn't try it. You know, Um, but the thing is, they're quite common and they're very beautiful. So people pick them because of that. You know, they're very noticeable. And and, um, so all over the world, those tend to be the ones that uh, um, uninformed people would try because they think Mm -hmm. it looks something like the store-bought mushroom, but it looks different. But maybe that's just because it's wild, you know. And then other than that, there are others that are poisonous, a few that are deadly and so on. But they're not the kind of thing that uh, the uh, average person is likely to eat. Somebody who's in a mushroom frame of mind might decide to eat them, but um, it's really the amenities that are the problem. And there's basically no cure. You know, the the compounds that are in there are really nasty. They uh, shut down the livers and your liver and kidneys and there's not a lot that can be done other than an organ transplant.
0: Wow. So so once you've once you know how to identify those then then you're a little bit you're it's a little bit safer cuz those those sound like the the worst ones.
1: Yeah, and the other thing about eating wild mushrooms is is that some of them really don't taste very good. You, you know, so you or or they they taste not exceptional. So there's it may, there's a few re, most people eat like five species. They're really nice ones. Chantra also one that you mentioned, morels, oyster mushrooms, maybe a few of, of the field mushrooms that are similar to the um, agar- agarics that you buy in the grocery store. You know, yeah. and, and most people are quite content with that because they taste good. Um, you can make really interesting kind of recipes with them. And, and uh, you know, there's there, there's hardly any need to go any broader than that unless you're really curious and looking for a lot of of nuances and flavor
0: is there a particular reason that those amanita the you know angel of death uh mushrooms are so poisonous do or do is it known or are they are they have some sort of natural predator that wants to eat them
1: there there may have been some some research on that and they, you know mushrooms tend to get uh kind of maggots in the caps so they, they may be an anti-insect thing. Mm. Um, squirrels can eat them, some mm. of them, you know, and they don't seem to get affected. And so oh, they, wow. The, the toxicity is often quite species-specific, you know. And, they, you know, we eat some things, you know, like chocolate, for example, that are it's poisonous to dogs, you know. Right, right. So it's it's just the luck of the draw. And, and and or the bad luck of the draw for Amanita if we eat them, you know, they're, they're not kind for people.
0: Hey, I just wanted to take a quick pause to thank another one of our sponsors, HostGator. HostGator is one of the world's top 10 largest web hosting companies with over 8 million hosted domains. They have around the clock support and all shared web hosting plans include a 45 day money back guarantee. I've personally used HostGator since 2008 for all of my hosting needs and couldn't be happier. Sign up today using the promo code SCIENCECENTRIC and you'll receive 25% off any new hosting plan. Uh, So one thing you didn't really talk about in the book at length was psychedelic mushrooms. Um, That's another... A uh, kind of class of mushroom, mushrooms that's not going to kill you, but it can send you on kind of a wild, uh, a wild ride. Um, is it the same kind of thing there that that these psychoactive compounds are um, also like a deterrent to to predators?
1: Yeah, that's a good one. Good question. The, the magic mushroom psychoactive compound one of them is called psilocybin. And it's been found in other fungi that are pathogens of insects, which again makes me think that they're probably an insect. They're probably aimed at the insects, and and their effects on humans are probably just accidental. You know, not Mm -hmm. by any evolutionary design. There are some people <laughs> who think that there is like a a higher purpose involved, but that's not my subject. So uh, yeah, but you know, and then and then there are other fungi that I, I, I do mention ergot in the book, and that's a, that's the other big right. uh, psychedelic compound. LSD is derived; it's a chemical derivative of a natural compound from ergot, which is a, gr- a grain disease, and that did have a lot of. um Effects in the Middle Ages on, on people who were eating uh, rye bread and things made from rye, and they didn't know that that these black spikes that were in there weren't part of the plant, and, and uh, they had quite severe uh, hallucinations and and uh, <laughs> gangrene and things like that.
0: Oh wow, they're yeah. But it,
1: modern on. you know modern medicine, you know, I'm sure you've seen the stories in the la- the last see, five years or so you know, these, these compounds have, are being decriminalized and, and they are being used tested experimentally for various psychological, um, like at, at a lower dose, not, a, not as hallucinogens, but a, as sort of medical medicines for people who have, who have psychological distress of various kinds.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool to see. Actually. Um, I think there's some therapeutic, uh, controlled environments when you take those things they can really be helpful um i know they're doing that also with mdma and some other things like that so yeah yeah, that's pretty cool um so are are these mushrooms trying to send you know insects on a uh you know magic carpet ride or what's the (laughs) or maybe they work in a different way in insects and that, like you said it's just some kind of accidental thing, but I'm just well, I'm trying. I'm envisioning, you know, grasshoppers flying around, just out of their minds, you know, like.
1: <laughs> well, to, to stick with the, the insect, <laughs> like you've probably heard of zombies, right?
0: Yes. It's a different, yes.
1: different group of fungi again, but these these are are fungi that that attack ants and beetles and things like that, and they basically uh, turn them into robots at their command and, and and so an ant that's infected by one of these fungi will climb a plant and get it as high up as it possibly can and then it will it will die and the fungus will cement it to the plant and then it will shoot a, a stalk out of its head and, and throw its spores in the air and what what this tells me is that these are very psychoactive compounds in general so that um and and that may be the purpose of 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 making them is to again sur- to ensure the survival of the fungus mm-hmm. that he needs to get out of the insect somehow and, and one way to do it is to you know make the insect go where where the spore dispersal will be the most effective
0: Mm-hmm. so it's kind of messing with its Creating compounds that mess with its, um, you know, behavior, and then that behavior leads to better reproduction, and then over many cycles that sort of gets reinforced. Right? Is that the? Yeah, I suppose. Something like that. Is that the? And is that the cordyceps fungus that you're talking about?
1: Yeah, cordyceps, Ophiocordyceps, uh huh. I know, and yeah. one of them is um, there. One of those fungi and one of these compounds is the the fungus is called Telepodium but it's one of these these zombie fungi and um, it makes a compound called cyclosporine A it's a bizarre molecule big um, peptides are what make up proteins but but this mo- molecule is a circle of peptides and and uh, this is probably an antifungal um a product in in nature. That's probably why it's doing it. In this case, is to com- uh, combat against other fungi. But where, it's what makes organ transplants possible for humans.
0: Oh wow! You
1: know, which is really not the intention of of the fungus. But but anyway, this has been one of the most successful antibiotics apart from penicillin. Yeah, that, that fungi, because it, I don't know how old you are, but I I was when I was a kid. Um, 10 years old was when that first heart transplant was. So in the last 50 years, 40 years, um, you know, heart, um, all kinds of organ transplants have, have become possible and it's possible because it's like, it's It's,
0: it seems like fungi are just these master sort of converters. Like they can convert, you know, so many different molecules into other molecules. I mean, is that a good, is that a good way to think about them?
1: Um, yeah, I think that's a pretty good way of, of thinking about it. And, and, and it, it ties back a little bit to, to, the, to our close relationship with them mm-hmm. from an from a evolutionary perspective, because compounds that they, do, that they make for biological reasons that, that, that affect the behavior, their own behavior, may also affect our behavior, you know, because we have this kind of biochemical similarity to them and i think that's why um we we get drugs interesting drugs from them but Mm -hmm. also if we happen to get a fungal effect infection it can be kind of difficult to get rid of it because Mm. uh, things that are toxic to fungi are often toxic to us
0: yeah that makes sense we're if we're yeah if we're more alike then yeah a, a something something toxic to us would it's toxic to them would be toxic to us. That makes total sense. Um, I mean, you know, we talked a little bit about poison in mushrooms, but also, like you you mentioned, the cyclosporine and then penicillin. I think people don't realize, I think a lot of people would not realize that that comes from a fungus. And which, and which one, which fungus does that come from?
1: Well, it comes from a fungal, the genus name is penicillium. Well there we you go. Little brush. <laughs> and, and people often just mix the two words together you know they they think the penicillin is a fungus but it's not it's a metabolite of penicillium and there's lots of penicillium species so there's there's a, a group of about five or six of them that make uh, this compound penicillin and this I'm really interested in the history of science and that and how uh, how scientists get along and don't get along with each other and <laughs> penicillin. The discovery of penicillin is a really interesting story from that perspective, you know, and it and it ties right into the history of the Second World War uh, very tightly because um, the the Allies had penicillin and the Germans didn't, and and so right. it kind of became a it became a lot of espionage and a lot of a lot of a, a kind of attempts to control. Um, the research that was being done on penicillin at that time so they could get it out to the soldiers
0: oh that's interesting yeah i mean i think before that right the the only thing maybe they had access to in terms of antibiotics were like sulfa drugs or something like that right i think those yeah and they've
1: been but at that time they've been around for about 30 or 40 years and, and they worked like they worked pretty well i i think but it but they had a lot of side effects as well and and they they, some of them are injected and some of them are just used as powder and Mm -hmm. kind of spread directly onto wounds and so on it was uh yeah they're still used a little bit but not not so much
0: yeah i think they i think maybe still used for um like intestinal things i I remember somebody taking sulfa drugs maybe uh, for something like that but um but yeah, penicillin was was like a game changer, right?
1: Yeah, it was a natural product in that sense. It, although yeah. it's been modified chemically to be a more efficient, uh, to be more soluble, so it can get into our, uh, and more stable, so it can get into our blood and so on.
0: And so, this oh. penicillium, is it? A, it's a, is it classified as a mold or as a?
1: Uh, well, it's ascomycetus mold. So it belongs uh-huh. to half the fungi we call ascomycetes, and then it's a. It's really the quintessential mold, you know, the green mold that you see growing on bread and, and uh, apples and things like that. That's one of the penicillium species. It's not that particular one. So that see. one is kind of a house dust fungus, the pen- penicillium, uh, what's it called nowadays, Rubens.
0: So, so this naturally occurring fungus, though, is probably not making... Enough of the metabolite penis, penicillin uh, for it to really have an effect, right? So it's like you, if you're eating moldy bread, that's not going to like give you antibiotic resistance or anything like that, right?
1: Oh no, I'll, I mean there, there are there's sort of cryptic stories in the, in from the 1800s and so on of people rubbing moldy bread on on wounds and stuff like that, but like I wouldn't like <laughs> it recommend that now and the part the issue with moldy food is that many of the compounds many of the chemicals that these fungi make are not harmless they are harmful Mm. and so it's really risky to eat moldy food unless you know what the mold is so with with the cheeses for example blue cheese and camembert you know we know what the mold is it's supposed to be there it's not making any toxins it's just doing nice things and that's okay but if if you buy some cheese that's not supposed to be moldy and it becomes moldy well you know that it then it's a risk to eat that
0: yeah um so this this penicillium though that's that's the same or similar back that, that makes penicillin is the similar is the bacteria that you find on those cheeses you mentioned like blue cheese and stuff like that it's the same family yeah, or whatever same
1: genus uh, same genus yeah penicillium that so penicillium rock 40 is blue the blue cheeses and Camembert is the soft white
0: cheeses. One thing you mentioned uh, about you know not eating moldy food that that I really took away uh, from took away from the book was that when you see that little when you have a cheese in your fridge and it's getting moldy, like you can't just scrape that mold off, right? It's it, it, you don't know how far in that those those hyphae penetrate into the the center of the cheese, so it's yeah. not like you you should There's be that. eating that.
1: It, like that's the hidden kingdom part of things, right? <laughs> They're hidden down in there and you're just seeing the, the top layer. But but they, they also, these toxins sort of exude out. They kind of diffuse out from where the fungus is. And they are also sending enzymes out that are um, breaking down the lipids, the fats in the cheese. And so you can see that if you hold it in the right light, you see that the reflection of light off the surface of the cheese and maybe the texture of the cheese has changed a bit and you can you see that well beyond the where you just see the spores Mm -hmm. so we you know i i always tell people that that uh, moldy food is unsuitable for consumption you know and that's a really good rule of thumb
0: yeah although i guess somebody had to be first you know the first person to try blue cheese or the first person to try gamut bear, right? Yeah, yeah.
1: There's, there's a story about that in the book, yeah.
0: <laughs> um, so, but, but maybe you don't want to go first. <laughs> Sorry for the interruption. I swear, I swear, this is the last one. I just wanted to tell you about the reading room that we have set up over at sciencecentric.com. It's a page dedicated to cool science and nature books, many of them written by authors who have appeared on this show. Any book you purchase through the links on the page directly supports the podcast and the other amazing projects we have in the works. The nice thing is there's no additional cost to you. So if you'd like to see a nice collection of science books uh, that you can purchase, head over to sciencecentric.com and check out our reading room so um one other thing i really wanted to talk or to ask you about is some of the cool interesting things people are doing with uh with fungi in terms of building things and making new materials could you just um maybe mention some of the really interesting projects that people are working on um you know making new materials. I thought that was so interesting. Um, and they're biodegradable, right? So it's, these are natural products. So
1: there's mostly it ties back into the, one of the very first things we talked about, which was the hypha, this cylindrical cell. And, and so it's a microscopic thing. You don't see it, but that's how a fungus grows. And so that's different than building things out of blocks or bags again, you know? And, and so people are taking advantage of that because it can, you know, they can interweave with each other. And, and so there's a whole, just about anything you can imagine people have tried to make it out of fungus now. So for textiles, um, fungal leather, um, there's some very serious efforts going on there, and the even there's there's one. Uh, I think this is more of an artistic statement, but the, there's uh, somebody who has a mushroom burial suit, so that you can you can wear after you're dead. They can wrap you in this mushroom suit, and then it will uh, assist with your decomposition. <laughs> I, but. The, and actually a lot of these kind of really weird things are, are more kind of artistic kind of statements, but there are some very serious things going on. So I think that the, uh, um, the the textile thing for sure, there's going to be some movement on that. Right Right now it's mostly in the fashion industry where that, you know, because they're not really that cheap to make yet, that
0: yeah. people are so- playing with that. So how do you make fungal leather? I mean, that doesn't sound possible. Like,
1: um... Well, I think the way that they do it is they, you know, they they grow a bunch of fungus, fung- filamentous fungus, and I think they're probably mostly using um, mushrooms in this case, like the oyster mushroom or the um, this one called reishi, which is a kind of more medicinal um, mushroom because they know how to grow them in liquid and they so and so they will harvest this growth either by spinning it down or or running it through um, a filter of some kind and and then they will try to reorient the strands in some way so so, and and most of this is proprietary so they Mm. there's not a lot of, of publications on this in scientific literature so you don't know exactly what they're doing but there's a lot of videos on YouTube about it. You can kind of, you can kind of get a feel for what they're doing, yeah. um, and then there's a lot of building materials that are are being investigated in that way too. So some of it is packing. So they're instead of using styrofoam, the idea is to either make uh, fungal pellets or else to actually grow the fungus around whatever it is you're trying to package, so that it's a a, a real close. Um, um, fit that protects whatever it is you're trying to, to protect. Mm-hmm. And, and then they, they have to kill the fungus in some way because you can't go sending these things around the world. Um, you know, that's not acceptable really at the moment to, to do that. So, so, it, but as long as it's, uh, dead and, and they, they do some kind of process, um, with heat or who knows what else, uh, to stabilize it so that the shape doesn't change, mm-hmm. and then and then the idea is when the when you're finished with it that you know you just throw it into the dump and it's biodegradable, which is probably true as long as whatever they did to the to make it to kill it or to or make it dimensionally stable isn't harmful.
0: I mean, that's the, the my other thought with that is just that you know the way that it seems like fungi can lose a lot of water and kind of go into this dormant state and then it's like if you added back water just come back alive and start growing uh, again which is not what you want to happen with especially with a clothing that it starts growing up you know um,
1: yeah but this, this question of water is really interesting in this in this case too if you look at these kind of boutique biotechnologies because there's people just like they're trying to make meat in a petri dish you know there's there's people who are trying to make products out of fungal cells and and texture them and flavor them so that they seem like food and and that's what's really interesting about that is so you think about a cow you know a cow you have to grow for a year a year and a half two years whatever it takes a lot of feed it takes a lot of water um a lot of energy to to raise that food that protein and it but for a fungus, you may get the same amount of stuff in, in two or three weeks. So yeah. the saving in energy and, and water um, can be huge. And then it's just a matter of convincing people that it's, that it's something they want to eat.
0: Is, is, um, is there some advantage that fung- fungi have over plants in terms of you know, growing these new materials or growing food? Um, do they grow faster? They use less resources, or, or are they kind of on par?
1: Um, so with the fungi, you'd be growing them in a liquid vat. So if you've ever been to a brewery or you know a winery, like there's these huge uh, tanks called fermenters, and they're filled with a uh, you know sugar water, basically. I mean, other nutrients are in there, and and the fungi grow in there. Mm-hmm. So. You can use waste materials. So, we, you know, for biofuels, for example, they they tend to use waste fiber from agricultural production. So, what's left over from the corn plant after the cobs are taken off, or uh. the parts of the sugar cane that are not used to produce sugar, and and so that that provides the what they call a the feedstock for um, the growth of mycelium. So it so for, in that way, plants can be grown that way too. Like alg- algae are grown, and that's part right. of the biofuel um, system as well. So, but but the, what we think of as plants, the land plants, they can be grown hydroponically, but not really to the same with the same ease yeah. that uh, fungi and bacteria can be.
0: So, I mean that that to me seems like the biggest advantage is that you can take, you know, waste from growing food, and then turn that again, into something that's useful versus taking up land that might have been used for agriculture and then turning that into, um, you know, some, some place that, you know, for, for growing fungi. Right. I mean, it's like, you're, you're you're taking, you know, wood waste or corn waste and you can turn it into something useful. Right. I mean, is that the, is that the advantage for, for fungi versus other, Means of creating these materials. I mean, obviously, with like plastics, they're not biodegradable, so that's a big deficit. But I'm just, I'm just trying to like kind of tease out what what advantage fungi have versus, like, say, growing, you know, trees well, or part, something
1: like that. Yeah, part, part of part of it is is uh, the ability that they can grow on what we consider waste. That that yeah. that's definitely helpful. Um and and uh, part of it is actually the, the the microscopic aspect, you know, when they're not microscopic when you've got a whole bunch of it together, but the, the the their tendency to grow as tubes or cylinders or whatever you want to think of it, you know, it's really that's that's what textiles are, you know, that you can you can see that there's an advantage in, in being able to grow something that's like that. So, you know, you yeah. think of the linen plant for a uh, flax plant, for example, where linen comes from, you grow the, the linen and then you have to thrash it like crazy to get out these long fiber cells, you know, and that, that's where linen comes from. And it's not to suggest that, that that's no longer going to be done, you know, but the the fungi give you more tools in the toolbox kind of to do different kinds of, of things.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um yeah, it's just building different structures, I guess, um that that are natural, that are natural materials. Um anyways, very cool. Um I'm I'm really excited to to kind of see uh where that goes and um you know, excited that we'll have these biodegradable materials like packing materials and things like that. So that's that's really cool.
1: Um, well, I think- about mm-hmm. it too is a small industry you know i call it boutique biotechnology in the book you know and it it still requires investment it's still you know it's still there's still millions of dollars involved in doing things like this but it's not like the huge chemical um, companies and so on that that have billions of dollars before they get anywhere or the drug companies you know it's 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 a smaller layer level thing and it can it can address local concerns and local economies and local cultural sensitivities, et cetera, um, much more directly because of that.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. One other thing you mentioned that was really interesting to me was that you mentioned briefly that there are enzymes that fungi make that can break down plastics. Um, and I thought I'd never heard that before. And I thought that was fascinating. Um, is anybody exploring that right now? Um,
1: yeah, there's people looking at that, and that I think that's a long way away before we can really break down plastic the way you're thinking. You know, what we have now are enzymes that will um, they alter part of the structure of the plastic. So, so a combination of physical treatments and and treatments with enzymes that you can either repurpose the plastic and make something else out of it or or uh, uh these get rid of the toxins that are are in it it yeah biochemically it's it's a real challenge and it's the same with lignin which is the one of the main carbohydrates in wood you know it, lignin is basically a plastic um and and it's very difficult for living things to break it down
0: yeah so um yeah i i um well, I thought that was I thought that was exciting. I think that's our kind of big biggest biochemical challenge in the world right now is what do we do with all these these plastics that we've made and how do we break them down? So, yeah. um, and you know, hey, if anybody, if any any kingdom can do it, I think the fungi can do it because they're they're uh, they're they're so good at breaking everything else down. So so maybe maybe some combination of you know biotech and natural enzymes and things like that will will get there. Um, anyways, that's probably a good place to wrap up. Um, thanks. Thanks for speaking with me, Keith. I really appreciate it. Um, I loved your book. It's so well written and it's just so interesting. And I just felt like I walked away with such a better understanding of sort of the role that fungi play in our life. Uh, so I, I highly recommend it to anybody, um, if, if they're interested in that. Um,
1: it's it's great to hear that you like,
0: the book uh, I loved it i loved it you're <laughs> yeah. a great writer you're a great I, writer
1: I, I appreciate that
0: um as uh so the book is coming out in it's the it's end may, of may end of may um is there are is there anywhere else that people can find you online do you have like a digital presence at all or um
1: i I was thinking you know this morning when you mentioned that that uh, you wanted to talk about the the these odd new uses that people are putting Fungi. If people anybody that's on flipboard I have a flipboard page called fungi in the news that uh-huh. i I, t- I tend to shovel those stories into and okay otherwise I'm not particularly media uh social media savvy i at the moment anyway
0: okay um so is there like a link is there a link that people can th- that yeah, you could provide I, I, for
1: that to, to fungi in the news sure I yeah can, I can send a link and I can send you the, well, you already have the link for the order for the book, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll put that up for sure. So okay, cool, all- so yeah, we'll we'll add a link to that, uh, to that curated uh, page in the YouTube description and the, the show notes for the audio version. Um, great, well, it's, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you and, and thanks for coming on.
1: All right, thanks for the invitation, I appreciate it.
0: <laughs> Cheers. Well, that's it for this show. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. Email us at feedback at Also, don't forget to rate this show and leave a review wherever you happen to download your podcasts. You can directly support future episodes by joining our Patreon page for as little as a dollar per month. We have a couple of nice benefits available, including early access to new episodes and a monthly live Q&A with yours truly. Head over to sciencecentric.com/support for more info. Sciencecentric is a FlowSpark Media production. Our audio engineer for this episode was Dayan Jezic. Guest booking was handled by Melissa David. Thanks for listening, and until next time, I'm Eric Olson.